All right, you can go ahead and be turning to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and then you can also be turning to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in both of those chapters for most of this morning. Um, there, there are two kind of key figures, if you want to say, in Israel's history. There, there are like two guys that, that Israel often was found to be looking back to as, these are, our, these are our guys, these are the ones, these are the guys that we tend to, to look back to. Uh, and I'm going to throw a third in there too. I mean, you've kind of got, you've got Abraham, who it all started with, obviously. Like he's the the father of the nation. He's the father that that kind of gave them their their kind of communal communal identity, who we are as a nation. You had Moses, who gave them the law, and then you have the guy that we talk we're talking about today, David, who was who was the significant figure of God establishing His rule through them, and that they were going to have, be a kingdom established, and that King David was their guy. He was the best king that we could look back to that, that connected so perfectly with, with who God is and what God wanted, and that's the guy. That's the guy we wanted to be like. And David, described as, you know, man after God's own heart. We've all heard these, these accolades, right? Saul, Saul has defeated his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Like, they, they wrote these songs about how much they liked David, how cool King David was, and all of these things. He was the one. He was the guy. He was awesome. He was the best king ever. All of these things. And yet, once again, and I'm sure this is a story that's familiar to most of us, even David was not perfect. Even David was fallen. Even David was sinful. And, and some of the things that we're going to read about in David's life today, you may be thinking, oh wow, that's real bad. That's not like me. Well, just you hold on because, because, because we're all going to relate to King David by the end of the day today, I hope. Well, that sounds real bad that I hope we're going to be like this really all. But I, I hope we're going to find these areas in David's life that we too can learn from. So if you are in 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, we're going to read the story of David and Bathsheba, or if you are more on the VeggieTales line, King George and the Ducky. So we're going to, which, whichever story you're more familiar with, that's, that's where we are today. So David and Bathsheba, 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to start with verses 1 through 5. In the spring of the year, the time when, t when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. So just, just quick aside, just quick pause. He's already not where he's supposed to be. He's already supposed to be out serving, and instead he's sitting back at his house, and he's just kind of hanging out. And I don't know about you, but sometimes idleness is not a good thing. Idleness is when your mind can wander. Idleness is when you try to fill your time with things, and if there's nothing holy or, or, or God-glorifying in front of you, you can distract yourself with things that are less than good. And that's what's going to happen here. Verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof of a woman from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful and David sent and inquired about the woman and one said is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam the wife of Uriah the Hittite so David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. 
going to stop right there. I need not tell you. Don't do that. A, like, like stand on your stand on your roof and look at other people's wives and be like, I want you to come over here. Like that, just in general, if you don't, if you don't under, again, baseline morality here, I want to establish that's not good. The first thing that we're, gonna, that we're learning about David is that in this instance, he is an adulterer. And in this case, he's stealing another man's wife. This is a bad thing. And, and, worse, and worse, right after that, he immediately finds out that there are going to be some really big deal consequences for what actions he has taken. She says, hey, guess what? Guess what? This isn't just a thing that's going to go away and you can pretend never happened. There's a situation here that we have to deal with. And it's not as even as though David was being super sneaky about this, right? I mean, he said, hey, guys, who is that? And they're like, well, this guy's wife. He's like, give her a call for me. Have her come over. I want to hang out, right? Like, like he's not even really being super smooth with this. By the way, I can already tell my wife is super uncomfortable with me telling this whole story and all of this. She's like, I'm going to have so many conversations. It's fine. It's in the Bible. It's good for us. And you may be sitting here thinking, wow, that's not me, or that could not be me. That's not something that I would do. I've never done anything like that, nor do I have any intent to ever do anything like that. Well, just I want to go ahead and pause on David's story and jump ahead to Matthew chapter 5. If you're already there, we're going to be jumping back and forth between these two chapters this morning. But in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is giving his one of his longest recorded sermons. He's sitting down and he's kind of just teaching all sorts of things that are true, all sorts of things that we should be living by. But one of the things that he's also doing is he's taking the law and he's beginning to explain how, in a new covenant mindset, how the law still continues to apply to us. And in some cases, the law is made even harder by virtue of the way that Jesus teaches it. So if you're in Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to start in verse 27. And it says, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, which we would have thought David would have known. You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, what's the point? I think one of the things that, and and, and I think it's important to say, David, not in sin, walking around on his roof. Now, we could make the argument he already wasn't where he should have been. He should have been off serving with the rest of his men instead of sending them off and just hanging out at the house for the spring. But, but walking on your roof, not a sin. Noticing something over there that you probably shouldn't look at and then looking away, not a sin. Continuing to look, inquire, and then move toward having an inappropriate relationship with person that you saw while walking on your roof, that's where it becomes a sin. And, and, and what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 5 is, it's not that he saw her, it's that the moment his mind went, oh, I have an idea, he was gone. It was over. Sin committed, adultery practiced, even though he hadn't followed through on everything else. He would still have been wrong because his heart was in the wrong place. Now, now his heart was already, what we kind of saw was, and I think verse 1 kind of makes that point. His heart was already not in the right place in that he was 
hanging out of the house instead of going out and doing the job that he was called to do, which there's another sermon there for that if you sit at the house too much and don't do the things that you're called to do. But that's not the sermon we're preaching this morning. But I just want to make that aside because I believe it. So if that happens to hit one of you, good. But, but he's already in the wrong place. His heart is, we're seeing evidence that his heart is already not really centered on the things that God would desire that he have his heart centered on. And instead he says, I'm just going go to go for a walk. And then his heart continues to pull farther and farther away from God because he's already not prepared to be actively pursuing God in the way that God would have him be at that time. His heart was already gone. He was already lost. He was already going after the thing. And then when he, when, he, when he saw Bathsheba across the way, if he'd stopped and turned around and said, whoa, I'm not supposed to be looking at that. I'm going to head back in the house and find something else to do. Or maybe I'm going to go to work because that's probably where I should be anyways. Any of those things, A-okay. But when he, in his heart, dwelt on that, when he, in his mind, continued to think about that, when he began to wonder if that is something that he wanted to pursue, he was already, he had already committed the whole act. And that's the point that Jesus is making. He's saying, if you, if you dwell on these things, if you don't flee from that sin, you're already, you've already committed it. In fact, Jesus goes on to say in verse 29 of Matthew chapter 5, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. He's saying we have to stay holy. We have to stay away from these things. We have to guard ourselves against that sin. It should have been that David, while walking on his roof, should have, had, could have, should have had that realization, man, I can see a lot of things up here. I shouldn't go on my roof anymore, and he should cut that off and take that opportunity away. Or he should, should say, I should take away the opportunity for me to stay at home and not go to war with, the, with my, my army like I am meant to do. He should, he should set up those kinds of things to keep him from falling into sin. But instead, he does not. He doesn't remove that. He doesn't look away. Instead, he engages. And, and by engaging with his mind, he'd already gone there, but then he even follows through and is immediately met with the results. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told him, I'm pregnant. So now David's in a real situation, right? He's like, okay. Obviously, what, what the man after God's own heart's going to do is that he's going to say, I was wrong. I should repent. I should go to God. I should, I should repent to her husband. I should, I should make all of this right. That's exactly what the man after God's own heart would do, right? 2 Samuel chapter 11, picking up in verse 6. We're going to read a bigger chunk real quick. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, okay, so this is obviously where he's going to repent and apologize, right? Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him 
a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said, Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in open field. Then shall I go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife as you live, and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So not only, by the way, did David do this thing, Uriah's a really good guy, like really honorable I will not do this thing. So David, obviously now feeling bad, he's going to repent now. Surely he's going to repent now, right? Verse 12, Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also and tomorrow, and I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at the Hebez? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. That doesn't sound like repentance to me. That doesn't sound like brokenness over sin. That sounds like a doubling down, a covering up, a trying to get away with. From so many different, in so many different ways, he tried to cover up the sin so that it would just go away. It wouldn't be a thing. It could just be something that he said, nope, I'm not going to, nope, didn't happen. Look, look, he came home. These things happen. No, because Uriah was a righteous man. Uriah was a good man. And so in the end, David can only resort to not only being an adulterer, but becoming a murderer as well as a means of covering up his sin. And you may, again, we may be thinking, man, he's so bad, but that's not me. I'm not somebody who kills people. That's, that's not who I am. Again, Matthew chapter 5, if you're still there. I'm going to pick up now. We're going to go backwards a little bit. In verse 21, it says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that, no, that any, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So, so we may not be like killing people, but man, Jesus is really trying to say, you shouldn't feel that sense of hatred or anger against another person, or else you're just as guilty as somebody who's killing somebody. And you may be thinking, that seems very different to just be angry at somebody. But I think the point that I think the point that Jesus is trying to make, just like he made with lust earlier, he said, if your mind's already there, there's nothing holding you back from continuing to act. In fact, your heart's already gone. It's already chasing after that thing. And if and if and if anger and hatred dwells dwells within you, like can well up inside of you in that same way, it's the same exact thing. It's it, it's a, it's as though you've already devalued that other person. I mean, if you want to think of it that way, if we want to go, if we want to talk about it from a from a image of God perspective, in that in that God created all of us. And he gave us all, he placed in all of us the image of God, that we all have equal value and worth. When somebody murders somebody else, they're saying, your life is less valuable than mine. And therefore, it doesn't mean as much that I would take your life from you. The point that Jesus is making here is that when we feel those same feelings of hatred or unbridled anger, unjustifiable anger toward people. We're essentially doing the same thing. We're devaluing the other person that we're feeling those things toward. He goes on to say in verse 23, so if you are offering your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift, therefore, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come offer your gift. What Jesus is saying is, if you realize that your heart is in the wrong place with relationship to somebody else, you've got to make that right, right away, before you come back and you try to participate in worship. It's why, and I know we haven't done communion physically here in a very long time, because... Hey, pandemic, how you do that? We're, we're, we're going to figure something out. But the point that I'm trying to make is, he's saying, take this sort of thing seriously. Take the way you relate to one another seriously and make sure that you are right with your brother before you come and try to pretend like you're right with me. Don't be so proud as to think that the things that you feel in your heart even though you haven't necessarily acted on them, but you've, you've, you've had them present in you. Don't, don't, don't think yourself still absolved of sin, I guess. Don't think yourself worthy to go talk to God if those things are living in your heart unchecked. Because just like we're seeing with David... In his heart was this desire, I want to get away with this thing. This guy isn't valuable enough to me so that I need to do something about it to make sure that I don't have to deal with the consequences of what my heart, which was already in the wrong place, desired and then went after. So, so it's easy for us to say, well, I may not be an adulterer and I may not be a murderer, but 
but it's a whole lot, it's also just as easy to say, I'm going to ignore these things that are present in my heart because nobody else sees those things. These sins that David was committing, these things that he was acting out on, are things that were very visible. But they came from the same place that we have those same kinds of thoughts and feelings at times. And they can hide deep down and be very easy to cover up to where no one else may see them. And you may be thinking, that is true of me. And I want you to realize what that can lead to if our hearts are in the wrong place. And so now David has, has the consequences of his adulterous action, and now he's murdered a guy. What's going to happen? Well, if, if you are in the King George and the Ducky world right now in your brain, then Paw Grape's going to come with a flannel board, and he's going to come sing a song to you about, about sheep and rich men and poor men. Would anybody like to hum a few bars? Anybody? No? I'll sing it for you later if you want to hear it. It's a great song. So if you're back in 2 Samuel, over in chapter 12, the prophet Nathan is going to come and he's going to speak to David. And he's going to talk, and he gives him this whole, he kind of sets up this whole parable about a guy who, who had lots of wealth, lots of sheep, and then there was another guy who was not very wealthy, and he had one sheep. And he loved that sheep a lot. And then the rich guy had guests come over, and he was going to have a party. And he wanted, to, he wanted to kill one of his sheep so that they could have a meal. And instead of killing one of his own, he went and he stole the sheep from the poor guy, killed that one, and served the meal. And David just got outraged. David just got so angry. Who is this guy? I will go. He should be thrown in jail. He should have all of his stuff taken away from him. He should be punished to the fullest extent of the law. That should never happen. And Nathan looks at him and says, that guy's you. Because you you're the king. You have everything. And yet you went and you stole the wife of a good guy. And not only that, you doubled down in trying to save yourself from the consequences and you killed him. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, after that in verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. There's going to be consequences for your sin, David. It's like in, this, in that same sentence, there is both a picture of justice and a picture of grace, because God is a God of both of those things. There are consequences for the sin that we are responsible for, yet grace that God says, I am not done with you. I'm still going to continue to work with you. And so, and so what happens is nine months later, the child's born, but the child is, is sick. The child isn't well. And David goes and he continues to plead and beg to God that God would relent from this 
I'm going to pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 12. I'm going to start reading in verse 20. Then David arose from the field and... Okay, so I, sorry, that's the end of it. i got to finish summarizing. David's sitting there. He's mourning. He's praying. And then word comes to him. He's not eating. And then the child dies. And they come and they bring word to him that his child died, that, 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 that God didn't relent, that God did follow through. And in verse 20, they came and they told him he was, that the child was dead. And then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that, my, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? But then this is the sentence, this confidence. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Sometimes, and I think this is worth noting, Sometimes when we meet with consequences for our sins and there is a level of punishment that is required as a response to some sin that we've committed. Maybe you experienced this as a kid when your parents would say, if you do this, then this is going to be the punishment, and then you'd do it, and then they'd follow through with the punishment. And sometimes the temptation when that punishment has been followed through on, we get really angry about it. It's like, well, I thought you wouldn't do it, or you didn't have to do it. I, I said sorry by the time that I was then punished, and yet we still get punished. And it's really tempting to get angry at the person who's punishing us when we do something wrong. But in this moment, David doesn't become angry with God because God followed through on the punishment that he said that David was going to have to face. Yes, God showed grace, and then he said, David, I'm not going to kill you but there is still going to be a consequence. This is still going to affect people. But David's response wasn't to become angry, wasn't to lash out, wasn't to be um, hurt by God delivering some form of justice as a result of his action. And I think that's important for us to realize because sometimes we tend to get mad at God when we sin, <laughs> which is hilarious, but we do that, right? You, I do something wrong, somebody points it out to me, and I get angry with them for pointing out sin in my life. Like, if you ever, if any of you ever come to me calling me to some form of repentance, I will probably get angry at first, and then I will have time to think, and then I will come back and I will apologize. That tends to be my response. But we do that. We get so mad. And, and in this instance, I think David, once he realized and recognized his sin, once Nathan approached him with his sin, he was hurt, he was sad, he was broken over it, he was repentant. But he didn't blame God for the things that happened to him afterward. He knew that God was at work in them, but he wasn't angry at God because bad things happened as a result of his sin. And then after it happens, he, he goes and he worships God, and he eats, and he says, I'm still satisfied in who Jesus is. And I think that picture of reconciliation between David and God is a beautiful one, because God had big plans 
for David. If you're still in 2 Samuel, I have one more passage. We're going to flip backwards a little bit, back to chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is, this is the promise that God had made to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to start in verse 8 when I find my place. Now, therefore, you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Right? I know, amen. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is the promise that God made. It's not just that I'm making you king, but it's that I'm going to establish an eternal line of kings that are going to come from you. And God's promise didn't come with God not being aware of the things that David was going to do in the future. God knows the whole story. He's the one who wrote it. God is the one who is working all of these things out. He knew what David's heart was going to lead him to. He knew that he was going to be led toward a cover-up. He knew all of these things, but yet he made this promise even before then. I'm going to establish your throne forever. What did he mean by that? He meant that from your family line is going to come a king who's far better than you, far more holy than you, far more perfect than you, and he will be established forever. And that king will be Jesus. That king will be the king of kings. The one to whom all of us look back to as our ruler. But in case you're wondering, how is this a perfect story of redemption? Like, like why did God need David? Why would God still continue to use David? What's, what's amazing about David's story is that, that immediately after this child died, as a result of David's sin, this isn't this isn't in the this isn't in the thing. I'm just we're, we're going off script now. Verses 24 and 25 of 2 Samuel chapter 12. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him, and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. That son, Solomon, is the next king who would continue with that same promise that God had made that Jesus was coming. Through the same, through the same relationship that began with sin, God not only redeemed David, but He redeemed His relationship with Bathsheba and used her now as one of the mothers in the line of Jesus. 
A beautiful picture of redemption, a beautiful picture of God saying, this doesn't end because of sin, but I continue to work with you. It's not over. I have more to do. And that's the, that's the whole point, is that, that God isn't just working about redemption in the life of individuals. I don't want to spoil where we're going by the end of this, but like every single one of these people that we're talking about that I keep describing as awful people just like you and me, like every single one of these people are integral parts of the story that God has written that bring about not just redemption for them as individuals, not just hope for them as individuals, but are part of the story that God has laid out to bring about redemption for all of us, to make salvation possible for all of us, to make reconciliation between us and God possible. All of these are steps along the way towards God's biggest, biggest action, which was sending His Son so that we could be redeemed so that he could be perfect on our behalf. He could be sacrificed in a, in, an, in a way that was awful and gruesome for him, but so that we could be redeemed and restored and reconnected with God. So, so I, I say all these things so there's some practical, hey, you know, don't, don't go steal people's wives and then kill their husbands. Like, don't do that. That's, that's bad. But, but be aware of what's in your heart. Be aware of those things. I, I want us to latch onto these things, but more so, I want us to latch onto the idea that even if those things have been present, that doesn't mean that you're done. It means that there's still hope and that there's still something that God is working out and He can still redeem and restore that relationship. 